Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Boundless Compassion of God. So turning your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Compassion or Judgment? I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase, his name is mud. When we say someone's name is mud, we mean that individual's reputation is beyond repair. It's permanently tarnished. From now on, when people think of that person, they'll think of a disreputable person. Do you ever wonder where that phrase came from? Well, many of us think it must have come from the picture of, you know, mud splashing onto someone. But there's a story behind that phrase, and it's interesting. Indeed, the mud in this story is a certain Dr. Samuel Alexander Mudd, Mudd being spelled with two Ds. The year was 1865, and John Wilkes Booth had just shot and killed the President of the United States, President Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln had been at a theater in a special booth in the balcony, and Booth had come up behind him and shot him in the back of the head and then jumped from the balcony onto the stage below. Booth thought he could do that and run out because he was known to be quite athletic, but he broke his leg when he landed, and he managed to hobble out of the theater and get on his horse and ride. But Booth was in desperate need of medical attention, and that's where we come to Dr. Mudd. Mudd treated Booth, allowing Booth to continue to to try to get away, and eventually Dr. Mudd was convicted of being Booth's conspirator, although some argue that he was not. Well, nonetheless, however it was, the reputation of Dr. Mudd was permanently sullied. Ah, Don't send me letters. I know there are those who argue that the phrase, his name is Mudd, actually predates Dr. Mudd. Well, sadly, that is true, and, and that kind of wrecks my wonderful little tale. But what Dr. Mudd did solidified that phrase in the English language. Indeed, that's what the papers said about him. They said, his name is Mud, and that phrase just stuck. So why am I telling that story? Well, I'm telling it because this story might relate to the book of Jonah and to the prophet himself. Jonah went to Nineveh to preach the message of utter condemnation to the city, and in consequence, the entire city repents. Later, when the effects of that revival wear off, Nineveh, instead of being destroyed by God because of their sin back in Jonah's time, well, they went on to become an empire, and that very empire actually defeated the northern kingdom of Israel, deported the entire population so that Israel was dispersed among the Gentiles. So you'd think that in future generations, the name Jonah would be mud. I mean, perhaps we could start a new expression. His his name is Jonah. I mean, had he not preached to the Assyrians, perhaps, but just perhaps, there might have been a complete complement of 12 tribes of Israel to this day. His name is Jonah. There's the tyrant that provided grace for the Assyrians to escape the judgment of God. Wouldn't it have been better for the Assyrians to have been destroyed with, without having had the opportunity to offer up you know, some mealy-mouthed repentance and then stay God's judgment and then later destroy a great portion of the Middle East? See, that's the question we're going to have to wrestle with as we now come to the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah. And get ready, because here is what I intend to do. I want us to hear both sides of the story. Well, today we're going to hear Jonah's side of the story, and tomorrow, well, the definitive side, God's side. And when we're done, 
I wonder who you're going to agree with. But let's start by reading today's text. It is Jonah 4, 1-4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? So please notice that this section ends with a question from God. Do you do well to be angry, asks God. And we're going to have to answer that question for ourselves. Does Jonah do well to be angry? So let's examine Jonah's anger in detail. Notice verse 1. Our translation says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. That is, Jonah was displeased that the Ninevites repented and that God spared them from destruction. Well, the NIV translates that same line as, but Jonah was greatly displeased. And a literal translation of this, a translation that might be you know, hard for us to understand, nevertheless, it's the literal translation. It says, but it was evil to Jonah with great evil. So let's start with the first part of that phrase, that it was evil to Jonah. Well, the word evil has been used in this book before, back in Jonah 1 verse 2. There we read, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so we began the book by noticing that the Ninevites were evil, and now we read that what had occurred, that is, mercy being applied to evil people, well, that was an evil thing to Jonah. Or it might be that the phrase meant to say that Jonah's attitude was evil. But but I suspect if you had asked Jonah, he would have recounted all the evil deeds of the Ninevites and that the evil they had committed needed to be judged and condemned. They were evil, and it was evil for them not to encounter judgment. Indeed, it was not just a minor infraction to withhold judgment from an evil people. It's an evil thing itself. See, I wonder if you've ever struggled with that very thing. Do you remember Job's words in the middle of his sufferings? Job 3.11, he says, Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Indeed, we might ask the same question of those who do great evil. God knows all things, and he could have taken most of the wicked men and not let them survive from childbirth. But very evil men and women have survived childbirth. They were nourished at their mother's breast. They were protected from disease and became adults and strong and influential and caused untold suffering to a great many people's lives. But then the matter goes further. Why is it that God had sent Jonah to Nineveh? You know, it's been suggested that Jonah might have felt a great deal of frustration now. We've noted that he's been prophesying in Israel, and we've noticed that in spite of his work there, There's not been a turn from idolatry, no revival. Rather, Israel had a love affair with the gods of the nations around her. Indeed, the more powerful the nation was around her, the more likely were the Israelites to adopt those gods. They thought that the power might rub off on them. But consider how different it might have been if God had destroyed Nineveh after the preaching of Jonah. I mean, what a powerful message that would have sent to Israel their capital in Samaria. This is what happens to nations that will not give up their idols. Yahweh is far more powerful than the the gods and goddesses of the Assyrians. Didn't you just see what happened? I mean, can you imagine? 
Jonah coming back from the ruined city of Nineveh, telling the story of his ministry, the destruction of the city, and then telling Israel, now's your time. You repent or the same fate awaits you. I mean, how effective that would have been. And so Jonah says, verse 1, he's angry. In his mind, he's every reason to be angry. And perhaps as you're hearing this, uh, well, maybe you agree with him. Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph. The psalm begins with Asaph saying that there was a time in his life when when his feet had almost stumbled. He means to say that there was a time when when he almost lost his faith in God. Well, then, what was the problem? Well, Asaph then confesses that he was envious of the prosperity or the success of the wicked. He says he's noticed that the wicked are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So listen to just a piece of his complaint and it's found in Psalm 73, verses 9 and 10. He says, They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. See what he's saying. The wicked have followers because people look at their success and then they say, Well, I want to be like that man or woman. On the other hand, if God had destroyed them, there would be no followers and they'd have to think twice. Uh, You know, people would say, so that's what happens when you offend God. But that's not what happens. God doesn't seem to intervene. And this is the issue here in Nineveh. Nothing happened to the Ninevites after they repented. Well, now, perhaps nothing ever happens or perhaps repentance had nothing to do with it. I mean, how do we know they were on the brink of destruction? All we know is this, things are going on in Nineveh as they always had. It really wasn't the end of the world after all. Maybe there's no reason to fear. I wonder how you feel about Jonah's complaint now. I wonder, are you slowly starting to agree with him? But wait, Jonah's not done. In his anger, he has more to say. He's now remembering the storm at sea and his nightmare in the fish, and he's reconsidering his prayer of repentance. He's about to tell God he had every reason in the world to run from him in the first place. It's hard to believe the time has come again, but Back to the Bible Canada is closing out another fiscal year. And that means we've already begun to lay the groundwork for another year of sharing God's Word from coast to coast across the nation. To finish well and enter the next year positioned for effective ministry, our goal is to raise $325,000 by June 30th. To help reach this goal, generous friends of the ministry have offered to match your gift this month dollar for dollar up to $100,000, doubling the impact of your donation. So consider joining us this month. Your gift means so much as we strive together to continue to present God's Word in truth to the world. To send a gift, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And one last note, thank you in advance for your gracious partnership. There's a telling phrase which helps us understand the entire book of Jonah, and it's in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2a. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Apparently, when God first called Jonah, Jonah had prayed and he had complained about this very thing back then. He was aware that God might use his ministry in Nineveh 
not as a precursor to wrath, but as the occasion to display grace. And so here's the word to all men and women teaching Sunday school in which, you know, you teach boys and girls. Look, it is correct to say that Jonah tried to run away from God and that we shouldn't be like Jonah. But that's not the lesson to be learned from this amazing book. Rather, the real issue is why Jonah was fleeing from God. I mean, what motivated him to say no to the call of God in his life? And the last part of verse 2 makes it abundantly plain. He says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, before we examine that statement, let's notice that Jonah is actually quoting Scripture. He's quoting Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. So let's go to Exodus and paint a picture of what led to those very important words. We have to go all the way back to Exodus 20, which is the receiving of the Ten Commandments. Israel has just been delivered from Egyptian slavery by some rather profound and overwhelming miracles. And according to God's word, they are to journey through the desert and make their way to Mount Sinai, where they're going to meet with God. They arrive there, and after a period of preparation, God himself arrives. The mountain's filled with smoke. The earth trembles. God speaks. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And then with those words of introduction, God gives them his ten laws. But even here, perhaps it's helpful to go back one chapter, back to chapter 19. Moses is there already telling the people the decrees and commands of God. And then in verse 8, they say, or it says, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. You know, they've already dedicated themselves to be the holy people of the Lord. But after the Lord himself had shown up on the mountain, well, the people are so terrified by the greatness of their God that they actually beg Moses to tell the Lord no longer to speak to them directly. I mean, they know that if such activity carries on, they are all going to die. So great was the Lord. And so they requested that Moses would speak for God. Well, after the events of the giving of the Ten Commandments, Moses is called to go up on Mount Sinai to meet with God, and he remains there for a great deal of time. Well, while he's there, Exodus 32 records that the people began to panic. Where's Moses? And so in their anxiety and rebellion to the, to the first and second of the Ten Commandments, they make an idol, a golden calf, just like the calf idols they were familiar with in Egypt. And Moses comes down to the mountain, and as we know, Exodus 32 records him breaking the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And then in chapter 33, we have a very famous prayer of intercession. Moses goes into God's presence. He pleads for mercy on behalf of his people. You know, and God listens to his servants. He'll continue to be with his people, for Moses has found favor in his eyes. And then in one of the most audacious prayers in history, Moses asks God to show him his glory. And God responds by telling Moses that he can't see his glory and live, but that Moses is to stand in a place on a rock. And God will cover Moses with his hand until he has passed by, and then God will take away his hand, and Moses will see the glory as it's fading. And as Moses awaits this moment, he's called upon to cut two more tablets of stone, and he writes the Ten Commandments out once again. He is to go up Mount Sinai on a second occasion. This now is Exodus 34. Moses is anticipating the greatest moment in his life. And on the one hand, he's leading the people that are prone to sin and rebel against God. But on the other hand, he's about to stand before the glory of God, the God of holiness, who will not leave the sinner unpunished. 
And so Moses awaits his encounter with God. And the Lord descends in a cloud and God passes before him. And as God is passing, he's proclaiming to Moses his holy name. The Lord, the Lord, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then having pronounced his covenant name, God begins to proclaim his attributes to his servant. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Well now, this is one of the great moments in Scripture. The merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in the love of the covenant. It's because God was willing to forgive that Israel was not consumed after they had made the golden calf. God had been slow to anger. He had been abounding in steadfast love. So let's get back to Jonah. He had been taught these things about God from his childhood. God had not poured out his wrath on Israel because God had found his servant Moses who would plead on behalf of the people. Uh, Israel still existed in the time of Jonah because God had been slow to anger in the time of Moses. You know, Jonah and his people Israel had lived under this slow to anger God. (laughs) Jonah and Nineveh. You know, he's been waiting 40 days for Nineveh to become the object of God's anger. God had also told Moses that, that he will not clear the guilty. The soul of one that sins is going to die. But God had found a man to intercede on behalf of the guilty so that he might find mercy when he repented. And so again, outside of Nineveh, as Jonah is awaiting judgment, the people of Nineveh, the king, the nobles, and all the people are repenting before God, and God saves them. Jonah's angry, and he says, back when you first called me on this mission, I didn't want to go. I knew this story of of Moses and of the sins of Israel and of their subsequent repentance. And I had a sneaking suspicion that when you announced that you were slow to anger, that you were merciful and gracious. I had a sneaking suspicion that this might not just relate to the people of Israel, but it might just be true of the Gentiles as well. But the thought that we would take the words spoken to Moses and apply them to Nineveh, well, it's more than I can stomach. If you're a merciful and gracious to the Assyrians, then I want nothing to do with your program, says Jonah. That's, that's why I fled from you, and that's why I'm so angry now. Let's ask ourselves a question. Is Jonah just an old-fashioned racist? Well, he's happy when God's merciful to Israel, gracious and compassionate, but he's not happy when God's merciful to Gentiles. Well, yes, I think so. But lest we jump on him and condemn him utterly, is it not so with all of us? I think about our attitude to our own country and our attitude to those countries who have become our enemies. We want more mercy for ourselves than we want for them. We want God to save us, but we don't want God to save them. And we give all manner of rational arguments why that should be. And we might even convince ourselves that God will be far more gracious to us than he will to them. You know, for those of us who come from European backgrounds and have received a heritage, that the countries from which we came were from the heart of what was once called Christendom. Well, it amazes us to see now that most European countries have abandoned God. And then we hear of an amazing growth of the gospel in other countries. And does it shock you to discover that in Iran today, the gospel is growing so very quickly? It's become one of the places on the earth where the Christian movement is growing most quickly. Are you offended that God has not brought revival to Europe but is bringing it to Iran? Are you angry about that? Now then, having put forth his case, 
Jonah makes a statement in verse 3, which is stunning. He says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is now the second time Jonah wants to die. He had told the Gentile sailors they should throw him in the ocean. Indeed, when Jonah asks to die, he's echoing the words of Elijah, who's fled from Jezebel. Elijah is so tired and hard-pressed, he's asking God to take his life. But Jonah is a very different man from Elijah, but he is asking for the same thing. Notice that God does not answer him. Instead, he simply asks a question. Jonah, do you do well to be this angry? Not are you more angry than the situation warrants? No, not that. Are you right to have any anger at all? See, how about you? What do you make of God's mercy to the undeserving? Does it make your heart want to sing praises to a God who loves those who sin greatly and yet repent? Or do you say, it's not fair? Do you agree with Jonah or do you agree with God? Do you love wrath or do you love mercy? Be careful how you answer. So much depends on it. Thanks so much, John. John, you know, I've shared with my kids over the years this thought that grace is not grace at all if it's deserved. Why do you think we have such a difficult time with extending grace to the least deserving? Yeah, I... (laughs) It may be, Ben, and this is horrible to admit it, but it may well be that the reason we have difficulty of extending grace is because we haven't seen ourselves as the recipients of overwhelming grace. Perhaps we have thought that our sins were not as bad as they were and that there was something that God saw in us that was worthy of his goodness. But God didn't see any of that. He saw the most black of human conditions, the the fist uh, pointed towards heaven, the unwillingness to bow. That is our story. And until we own the depth of our own depravity, we will never extend grace to others. Uh, Jesus himself said that he who is forgiven much, has been forgiven much, uh, also uh, forgives much. But if we've been forgiven little, we'll only offer a little. So it's not that we have been forgiven little. It's that we have become uh, aware of how great is the grace of God towards us. So the greater our awareness, the greater our compassion also for those who need it. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, The Boundless Compassion of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. definition of legacy? Something that is passed on. But legacy can mean so much more. Your faith, core values, your character, or the life you lead. Maybe this is news to you, but Back to the Bible Canada partners with Advisors with Purpose to provide expert estate planning at no cost. This is a third-party service, so Back to the Bible Canada is not involved in the planning or how you would steward your legacy. We simply hope to provide access to an opportunity to ensure you leave a legacy that will accurately represent your wishes for future generations and faithful stewardship of all God has entrusted to you. So if you're interested or would like more information, call Advisors with Purpose directly at 1-866-336-3315 and let them know you're a friend of Back to the Bible Canada. 
or visit backtothebible.ca slash legacy.